the optimal life. So I find you to be somewhat of an enigma type character because there's not many people that not only can they kick your ass, but they've got like a, a IQ that's 30 or 40 points higher at the same time. There's very <laughs> few people in this world that can do both. And I'm talking to one of them right now. I mean, your background going back before we get to all your business acumen and accomplishments. Um, I want to talk to you about like your, your wrestling upbringing. Cause I believe that that's probably where you really achieved and really developed that discipline, developed that relentless mindset that allows you to be who you are today. So uh, what was wrestling like growing up for you? When did you start? Well, you know, what's interesting is um, it, it even goes way before that because wrestling, I actually really didn't get into wrestling until high school. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people know that. Um, you know, I had the good fortune of going to St. Edward High School and, and wrestling for a great program and, and winning two state championships. But actually, my roots are actually from judo. And so, as you know, I, you know, my brother Haruki and I, uh, my sister, we were all uh, deeply involved in judo because our father was an eighth degree, eighth degree black belt in judo came from Japan to teach judo around the United States, I actually met my mom, who was a fourth degree black belt in judo. And, um, you know, which means we really didn't mess around at home. We just really got our tails kicked if we got out of the line. But um, I started doing judo before I was three years old and was on the mats, uh, won my first national championship, uh, was around 10 years old, uh, went on to win uh, seven total junior national championships. Um, and really, had done judo uh, for the most part up until my father passed away when I was 13 years old. Uh, his best friend, Coach Hada, who was an Olympic wrestling coach and coached at St. Ed's at the time, and his sons went to St. Ed's. Um, he's the reason why I really got into wrestling. And uh, he said, you know, I, after you know my father passed away and he and my father had words, uh, as any friend would ask a friend, you know, keep, keep an eye on my family and you know, take care of my sons and my daughter and, and look after my, my wife and make sure everybody's okay. And um, he said, hey, why don't you try – wrestling it's very similar to judo and you know so it, it's kind of an interesting background because after i graduated from penn and, and i went to the wharton school of business and and uh, you know obviously one of the best business schools in the country um i actually trained for the olympic trials in 2004 uh, but we were getting approached uh by a lot of the uh, ufc recruiters um, and at the time i was training with daniel cormier josh koscheck johnny Hendricks, um oh, you know you name it those guys with Molo all, I mean, some of the, you know, legendary guys that are, that are in the fight club today. Um, yeah, that's, but that's those are the guys that I trained with. Well, so I was like, uh, I was a little, I was, I was a little, a little interested in, 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 in maybe taking that step, but I was like, you know what? Like, I, I went to an Ivy league school. I really don't want to get punched in my face. And <laughs> I did all this work rather, I, I rather than go back all this work to refine my brain. And now I'm going to make it mush. But let me exactly. go back. let's go back, Yoshi, to when you were a child, because I think that there's something that happens when you're put into that kind of environment, that competitive environment at a young age, and you are being pushed and you're being challenged. And I think naturally, you probably are growing up in such a healthy state of really not living in fear, because you know what you're capable of. And you know how to handle yourself. I think most human beings live in a subconscious state of fear, especially as kids growing up, seven, eight, nine, those weird relationships where kids start getting making changes and they start picking on other kids at school. I think that that's probably something that you really never had to worry about. Uh, you know what? I, I, I'd like to say that I didn't, but um, I was, 
you know, I had a humble upbringing, um, grew up in, uh, you know, half Caucasian, half Af African-American neighborhood. You know, I'm half Japanese and people thought I was Mexican. So I got picked out a lot. And actually, believe it or not, in the fourth and fifth grade, I actually went through a little period of time where I got bullied. And, um, you know, there were a couple of kids that got held back, you know, for, in the fourth grade. And, you know, I wasn't that big of a person at the time, even though, you know, arguably from judo, I could probably handle myself. It, it, it's still a very awkward period of time as you're changing as a kid. I, I, and I went through that phase. I, I think a lot of people do. Um, you know, you look at guys like GSP, you know, one of the toughest fighters out there. I mean, he got bullied as a kid, um, but that does change you. Um, and as you start to grow older and, and build more confidence in yourself and, and what you're doing, um, you know, that goes by the wayside. Um, and as long as you keep your sets, your sights set high and, and on your goals, uh, you can get past a lot of that. But, you know, listen, I think a lot of people go through that type of period in their life as a kid where, you know, not everything is smooth, but you might put a mask on. And there's an interesting philosophy that I like to talk about. It's a Japanese philosophy of three masks, right? There's a mask the whole world sees, right? And then there's a mask that your closest friends and family see. And then there's a third mask that only you see, right? And there's a lot of stuff that builds up underneath that third mask that not a lot of people talk about. But listen, you know, everybody goes through weird stuff, especially at a very young age. And, you know, I went through it too. But, you know, that's interesting. Enough, I, that's interesting. Even, some, even somebody like you, I think this is a great lesson for any young kids, even somebody like you that was training and had this background and came from a, a warrior type family and you got you, you knew how to handle yourself in a in a situation that might have been uncomfortable. Even you in the fourth grade or fifth grade was like, man, I don't like this feeling. I don't like this confrontation. And I find it ironic because those kids, the ones that are typically lashing out and doing the bullying are really the scaredest ones. I mean, yep. they're they're the most insecure. They're living in a bad environment. Those are the ones that are the scaredest ones. But nobody knows what anyone's capable of at, at that age. So they just think, hey, if I'm bigger than that person, I could probably make him think I could kick his ass. <laughs> That's right? true. You, you, know, you want to know what's funny about that? Uh, there's this old saying about uh, never mess with a wrestler, right? Or you get your ass kicked. And uh, there's, you'll hear a lot of football players or anybody, athletes or just tough guys, they'll say, you know what? I don't care how big or small that guy is. Look at his ear. And they see that cauliflower <laughs> and they, they it, just it, leave you alone. Yeah, if his ear looks like like a shredded up mushroom, you know, <laughs> stay away from the only, stay away from Only if I had... Only if I had that when I was in the fourth grade, maybe people would have left me alone. Yeah, but, they would have uh, definitely not fucked with, That kid wasn't <laughs> fucking with you if you had those ears in the fourth grade. So you you end up going off into high school, and you started doing wrestling. You said 13, 14 or something like that. Um, it, was, was, that like a, was that like a humongous – when you started getting into it, was that a life-changing thing for you, or was it just kind of continuing on this judo path with adding this new martial art to it? No, it was totally life changing, especially when you walk into a room like St. Edward High School, right? And you think about, um, you know, judo's, there, there are a lot of aspects of judo where it's about body control, it's about technique, and there's conditioning, and, and you know, it's a little bit more about momentum and, and technique than it is strength. But um, when you walk into a wrestling room like St. Ed's, it's like brute force, like baptism by fire, you know, one on one, get your tail kicked by the seniors in the, in the room. And, you know, my drill partner was, you know, who I consider my brother, Ben Hada, uh, Coach Hada's son. Um, you know, he, he, I was a freshman. He was a senior and he was my drill partner. Man, I got beat down every day. And, 
And these, know, are state, these are like state champ caliber. Oh, yeah. These are all state champs. Uh, I mean, state champ, multiple time state champ. Ben won it that year. Arguably, Ben Hada had one of the greatest state championship runs of, of, of any individual state champion. Um, you know, Eddie Jane was a two time state champ, going to be a three time state champ. Brad Clement, um, who I, you know, was um, co-inductee of the, to, to the St. Ed's Hall of Fame this year. Um, all these guys are, are class acts, but just animals on the mat. And, you know, as a freshman, you know, you're in awe of them, uh, especially as they're throwing you around the mat. Just, you're really just a drilling dummy as opposed to a workout partner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but you're getting thrown into, uh, you're, you're getting thrown into that fire. And, and as you're seeing these guys in front of you, the, the state champs and the, the caliber of people that you're surrounded by, I assume at some point as you're like looking at them and you're going through your ninth grade, maybe into your sophomore year, like, I want to be those guys in a few years. I want to strive to be exactly what these guys are. I want to be a state champ. I want to be an all American. You know, what's interesting about that um, specific comment, because yes, everybody that walks in that room that wants to do wrestling, they have this aspiration of, of being the best. And, you know, for me, it was, you know, I've seen these guys names in the paper and, and, you know, the interviews and, and watching them win tournaments. And, um, you know, there's a lot of pride in representing the school. Um, I, I definitely wanted to be there, but I didn't quite know what it really took to get there. And my freshman year, I, ne I didn't wrestle varsity gold. There was a second varsity team that St. Ed's had. It was a green team. And I had a good year as a freshman wrestling the second varsity team. Um, but my sophomore year, I made the, the gold team lineup and I actually cut a lot of weight to get back down to 119 pounds. And I had arguably one of the worst wrestling seasons, probably one of the worst athletic seasons of my career in any sport. And, you know, I didn't know how to cut weight properly. Uh, I was starving myself, right. Trying to keep my weight down. Um, you know, I just all the wrong things that you should be doing when you're trying to manage or cut your weight on top of being in such a brutally intense practice room. Um, I got hurt a lot. Uh, I remember a kid bit my finger in a scrimmage and I ended up in the hospital with an infection. I had separated my shoulder. I think I sprained my ankle, um, had a severe concussion from, from one of the wrestling meets that I had uh, wrestled in. I think this was like January timeframe. And, you know, last but not least, um, you know, I didn't make it out of districts that year. Uh, and in the wrestling practice room, as we're trying to get the other guys ready for state, uh, I got into a flurry uh, with one of the other uh, wrestlers uh, and twisted my knee and pop, popped the cartilage in my knee. It was just like the icing on the cake. I just completely I'm like, you know what, like, what am I doing? What did, what did I just do? I wasted a year. I'm, I'm pitiful. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't even like barely walk upstairs. Um, you know, my mom's really concerned about me, you know, I, and to be honest too, it was an interesting year because I also had, this was three years after my father passed away. And they say like, when you go through a pretty traumatic, like death experience like that of, of, of a, you know, when you're at a young age that, you know, three, four years after it really hits you like a ton of bricks. And that just came slamming down, uh, on, on top of me in that sophomore year. So, uh, it was, um, it was a hard year, uh, for me, but what, that taught me was all the things I shouldn't be doing. And it opened my eyes to all the things I should be doing. And, you know, a lot of wrestlers, uh, in order to be a, a better wrestler, you got to be on the wrestling map. But what I did was is I isolated myself that year. Um, you know, I live, we lived in Elyria, Ohio, um, you know, it's a half hour track to get to St. Ed's anyway. So I, I actually didn't wrestle at all that summer. 
Um, I just ate, you know, healthy. I hit a growth spurt. And I remember my, uh, I, I, a buddy down the street was going to throw away these old plastic weights. You remember the plastic weights with the cement inside, but it's just like the plastic coatings. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and the bars with the screws with the little ties yeah. on the side. <laughs> the, 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 it was weeder, like, the gym weeder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It literally could have been more than like, you know, 50, 60 pounds. But from the day after the state tournament, after I had my knee surgery, until the time I stepped on the wrestling mat the next fall, I literally, in every which way, whether it was hang cleans, bench press, military press, upright rows, I lifted that 60 pounds thousand times a day and i went from 119 pounds to 140 pounds the next year and i, I literally walked into the wrestling room some people were looking at me like what did you take this summer and it wasn't it was i was just doing all the wrong things to my body and to my mind to not, not let myself grow and yeah i i remember wrestling my drill partner from the, the previous year and the first match uh practice match and i it wasn't even close and right then and there i knew i did everything i could to set myself up to succeed. I still needed to get through the season. I still needed to make good decisions about how I took care of myself, my health, uh, how I trained, how I did the extra, uh, and then how I managed my weight. But that year, I didn't really cut that much weight. And I think at the state tournament, um, you actually get uh, allowance pounds. So every month, January, February, March time, you would get one pound for growth. They call it growth allowance in high school. And then by the second weigh-ins at the state championships, you get another two pounds. So I got to weigh 145. I weighed in at like 141, 142. And I remember my, 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 my opponent in the finals, uh, uh, Mike Feeney, he was cutting down from 152 and he got, he probably had to weigh about 160 pounds when I wrestled him and he was six, three, but I, it didn't matter. Um, I was stronger, I was faster and I was more mentally, um, you know, I had more of a mental. Yeah. That was that your point. Dream. Um, and I won my first state championship. And that was your junior year. year, your first state championship. But going back to your senior or your sophomore season, when yeah. you had the worst year of your life, it sounds like, where everything, it was the perfect storm. Everything came crashing down. Yep. Your, your health wasn't good. Your mental wasn't good. You were missing your father. The, the void of him being gone finally caught up and hit you. All these things. And then you finish off your season, uh, not only losing, but then it sounds like getting in some, some kind of skirmish. And then you end up getting injured on top of the loss. So you're pouring salt in the wound. When you went home and you got the surgery and then you said after the, that state tournament was over and you just stayed home and you started focusing on yourself, that doesn't just happen overnight though. I mean, something must've been happening inside of you that what was it like of all the things you went through that year, what was the one thing that really stood out says, Holy shit, man, I got to change. I'm not doing this another year like this. You know, I, um, for the first time in my life, um, I felt, I felt, to be honest, I felt left out and I felt like, you know, I just let a lot of people down and, you know, at the time my mom's a single parent, you know, she's got two pennies to rub together. Uh, and, you know, I got a little brother, little sister who are looking up to me as the oldest one in the house and, you know, walking around feeling sad for myself um, wasn't what our family does. Um, it wasn't what my mom did after my dad died when she didn't have money, when she didn't have, you know, could barely figure out how to get me, you know, to say Ned's and back so she could go to work and then go back and pick me up. Like, and then I realized it clicked and 
if I didn't work 110% as hard as my mom was working at that point in time, I'd be disrespecting everything she did for me. Mm. And it stopped. And I remember seeing my friends win state championships. I remember seeing the articles in the paper, like, you know, Cleveland all-star team, you know, this person and that person. I said, you know what? I want to make my mom proud. And I just, just fired. Even thinking about it right now, just, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. I get fired up. Like I just, when you start to take it to a whole nother level where you just, the things that people do for you to set you up to succeed, you know, we can take that for granted sometimes. And I, I just, you know, even though I didn't know what I was doing to myself and how unhealthy it was and not, not taking care of myself and trying to cut too much weight. Um, yeah, I wasn't going to let that be a factor anymore. And I was going to change that and flip it completely on its head. If this isn't working, let's go the other way. Let's eat healthy. Let's work out as hard as I can. Let's get as strong as I can. Um, that just, that, that fire that just kindled and started to burn inside. Um, you, were, you, were, you, were, you were holding yourself accountable to your entire family. And Absolutely. really, I was, I was the oldest. mother, it sounds like, first and yeah. foremost. My, my, I'm, 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 at 13 years old on my dad's deathbed, you know, like, he looked at me and he said, you're the oldest. What do you do? You, you step up, right? You can't say, I don't have this. I don't have that. We don't have a house. We have, you know, four people living in a small two bedroom apartment, right? Stacked on top of each other, uh, you know, barely have food to eat. You know, church is bringing Thanksgiving and Christmas meals to, to our, to our house because we don't have enough, um, you know, you just, you wake up and you hold yourself accountable to the fact that you're the oldest in the house. And that's hard for a 13 years, 13 year old, but who cares? That's what needed to be done at the time. And your, dad, your father said to you when he was passing, he said to you, one of the last things was you're the oldest. You're the, now the man of the house, essentially. Yeah. Take care of your family. Wow. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And it's heavy. You know, a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, and one thing I learned about, um, you know, the, the, let's call it wall street and, um, or uh, that world is there are a lot of people that are born on third base and they think they hit a triple. Right. <laughs> That's so true. Right. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll roll up sleeves and, and, and we'll work, we'll work circles around those kind of people. Yeah. Right. Because if I don't, right. What would that say about the legacy that my father left or the legacy that, my mother left for us and, 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 and she can now, she's still alive and can look at me or my brother or my sister and say, wow, I'm really proud of, really proud of what they became, really proud of what they're doing. And, you know, it's all, it's all inspired because of, you know, responsibility that's thrust upon you that at a, at a very early age. And I had to grow up and, you know, sometimes you know, my brother and I will act a little childish, but, you know, we're just trying to get back to some roots and maybe some years that were, were taken away from us because we had to grow up real fast. And, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, you, 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 as the oldest in the house, you become a leader real fast, right? You, you start doing the right things. You listen, you pay attention and you start to take those real step functions higher, you know, to get yourself to a different level. So your junior season, you end up winning the state championship. You go from getting knocked out in districts a year prior to yeah. then winning the state tournament at 100 and what, what weight class were you? 140. 140. When the, that, after you win, 
that night, do you remember the feelings? Because you went through a really tough period. Do you remember what that night was like for you? You know what? Um, just being on cloud nine and just like walking on and off the mat night was surreal. Hearing the crowd, you know, cheering after the match was over because I couldn't hear anything while I was wrestling. I could barely hear my coaches. I was in such a zone. And um, I remember this <laughs> tip of a Japanese guy. My mom said, what do you want to do? We're going to celebrate tonight. So we go home. We get back to Cleveland. And uh, we had sushi that night. And, and some family friends came and met us. And, um, you know, it was an honorable end to, uh, you know, to a really good year. And, um, you know, I got to celebrate that with my family and my mom. And it was pretty what cool. Did, what did your mom say to you? Because she must have saw, looking at her oldest son, Yoshi, from in the 12-month period, she must have saw such a change. What did she say to you that night? Said very simple thing. I'm proud of you. And that made, it, it, all, and that made it all worth it to you? 100%. That was everything that 100%. you wanted. That was everything you had worked those 12 months for. Yep. Absolutely. That's absolutely, that's absolutely and incredible. It, and, and, and it was the fact that she could be happy and she could be – you know, all of the hard work that she put in to us, it paid off. And, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you don't really get to see your investments pay off right away. Right. And, you know, in the financial markets, we, we always talk about long term investing. Right. And things like that. Um, and sometimes you don't see the, 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 the short or intermediate term rewards. Um, but that was a big one because, you know, we had we we struggled and even still even during that period of time, we, we, we still struggle. But. You know, the fact that she could sit there and say, you know what, figured out how to get my son to St. Ed's and set him up to succeed. He's a, you know, honor roll student and he's a state champ. It's incredible. It's big. It's such big. a, it's such a story. And then you go and you win it again your senior year. So you're yeah. a two-time yeah. state, two-time state champ. Yeah. And I'll tell you what though, uh, senior year, I had, um, had an amazing season mowing through everybody um, get to, uh, it's a week before, no, two weeks before the, uh, Walsh dual meet. Uh, we are neck and neck. Uh, I think we're ranked kind of top two or three in the country at the time behind Blair. And, um, we, you know, it was really important for us to beat Walsh Jesuit and Walsh Jesuit had a stat team, Sonny Marchetti, Joey Heskett, you know, Jeff Knopp. I mean, just a, an amazing team. And we had, we were one guy down. I think Mike Kolzicki had broken his back. So he was out. Um, so coach, uh, coach Urbis and the other coaches uh, came up to me and said, Hey, listen, what do you think about bumping up to wrestle Joe Heskett? I said, bring it. I was ready. I was, I was ready. And um, I'm in practice that, that Monday fired up. I'm like starting to work on technique, you know, thinking about strategy. You know, this is two weeks away. I take, I decide to take an unorthodox shot that I typically don't because I'm thinking about strategy and what I would do uh, wrestling a guy like Joe Heskett. And I was wrestling a longer, lankier guy. Snap. Wait, tore, the cartilage in my, tore the cartilage in my other knee. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. And um, screaming. Coach is coming over. What's wrong? What's wrong? And my knee locks immediately. And since it was kind of similar to what happened in, the, in my other knee, you know, a few years before that, I knew exactly where I go. I, 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 I tore up my knee. I hurt my knee. And they're like, well, get up. And I tried to get up, and I couldn't get up because my knee was locked. 
And I was like, I think I tore the cartilage. I was like, I can't bend my knee. And, um, you know, sure enough, uh, you know, saw that they, they called. Actually, we were very fortunate. We had ties to the clinic and, and Dr. Parker, uh, who is the head of orthopedic surgery. At Cleveland he did clinic, my shoulder. One of the best. R- Rich Parker, he, he did my shoulder. Yeah. One yeah. One of the best. So yeah. he comes in, he goes, he looks at me, he goes, he goes, yep. So the college uni, seen it a hundred times, maybe a thousand. He goes, let's get you in an MRI. We'll get you in Thursday. We'll get you into surgery on Thursday. Um, and I explained to him, I said, well, the first surgery we did um, with another doctor, uh, they, he did this certain procedure where they used three incisions into my knee. I said, I said, doc, I was like, it took me a month and a half to get back. I was like, first off, I was like, sectionals is like three weeks away. I have to be able to wrestle. I was like, is there any way that we can like get me back fast? And that's, that's why in my <laughs> non-medical high school wrestling right. church, I was like, can you get me back fast? Right. And uh, he goes, he shook his head. He goes, you know what? He's like, I've been trying a new procedure. He's like, he's like, uh, he's like I'm, I'm going to try it on you. He's like, I can promise you one thing. He's like, you will not, there will be nothing wrong cartilage wise with your knee. I'll clean it all out. We'll remove the loose piece. Um, he's like, you, you, you will not injure it again. He's like, but I promise you it will hurt. And, um, you know, I wasn't a big, you know, pain medication guy. Obviously I'm in high school. Uh, and, um, you know, so, you know, had surgery Thursday, uh, rested over the weekend, uh, rode the bike on Sunday. I was on the mat on Monday, um, started drilling, working out. And I kind of was in the back of my head. I'm like, you know, like, okay, like maybe I can get back for this Wall Street dual meet on, on Friday, Saturday. And uh, by Wednesday, I was like crawling off the mat, like mm-hmm. my knee swelled up. I was pushing myself too hard. And it was exactly like Dr. Parker said. He said, listen, you're, you're not going to you're not going to hurt yourself again. It's, it's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they threw me out of it. Like, listen, Coach Jervis was like, pull me aside. Listen, Yoshi, you're done. It's like, you're not wrestling this weekend. Don't even think about it. Get on the bike. He's like, states is most important. You need to get healthy in two weeks. Day or two goes by. Um, and uh, we, we pulled a, a, a one over on Walsh because we actually I weighed in at the higher weight class at 152. So they they thought I was actually going to wrestle. But there were these rumors around how I had knee surgery and how I you know, wasn't going to wrestle. And so threw everybody for a doozy. We ended up losing the match, unfortunately. But, um, uh, you know, I rested up and got ready for um, got ready for the States and had an OK sectional tournament. OK, district tournament um, got to the States and I twisted my knee again. Uh, and going into the finals, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't hundred percent, but you know, somehow, some way you know, I was able to pull it off again and uh, wrestling essentially on one leg. What, what do you attribute that to Yoshi? Cause when you're talking about this, it's easy to just talk about it and people could listen and say, Oh, wow, that's so cool or whatever they're thinking. But to truly understand the, the, the odds that you defied in, in all those years through wrestling, but especially what you just told us about, you're wrestling against some of the baddest motherfuckers at 17, 18 years old at that point. You're at a state yep. wrestling tournament. You're on one knee, basically. I mean, and you're so you're up against one of the top two guys in the state at that point, you and the other guy. Yeah. And you have a bum knee that you just had surgery on a month prior, whatever it is. Yeah. What do you tr- attribute? How can somebody like you pull off a win in that situation? There's not a shot in hell that he was going to beat me. Cause it's all mental about the toughness. mental, it's all the mental, mental about. toughness, mental toughness. You know, I, I prepared, you know, most of my life, but like, when I sit back and I look at like some of the hard things that, 
you know, other people go through. I look at, you know, some of the hard things my mom went through, you know, struggle with, you know, physically and mentally to, to get us where we were. Um, what's one knee? Nothing. It's not going to stop me. That's just so fucking incredible. That's such an unbelievable story. Yeah. When you look, you look back, it's got to be, I mean, I know it's your life. It's always not as impressive when you look, but sometimes you must look back and go, wow. Yeah, it's, a, it, you know, it, it is, it is, real. you know, it was a, getting inducted into the St. Hall of Fame was, um, was a good time to reflect on a lot of those moments. You know, my, um, as you, you know, you know, my in-laws, the, the Ward family, you know, amazing family, uh, you know, legacy wrestling family, both on the East and West side. Um, you know, I, I got to, you know, sit that, sit back and, and talk about stories of, you know, when I met my wife, Amy, and, and when I met Dover and Sally and, and, you know, all of those things that were going on through that period of time, um, you know, that, that moment of getting inducted into the Hall of Fame allowed me to reflect on all the great moments. Um, but it also allowed me to appreciate, again, those smaller victories that, that you, you, you sometimes forego to, you know, and celebrating, um, it, really reflecting on those small moments of like mental toughness and getting through tough times and, you know, not not giving up or, or, you know, making a change sophomore to my junior year, or, you know, gritting it out to, to win a, a second state championship on one leg. Um, you know, you're like, wow, like that's a lot. That, that's, you know, sometimes it's more than some people do in a lifetime, but um, yeah, I packed that all into a probably a five, six year period. And um, you know, it's a, a sense of accomplishment and, and, and pride in what you did because you start to realize that, you know, albeit, you know, it was a lot of that was driven because of, you know, wanting to make my mom proud. And, you know, a lot of it was also then you realize, wow, how proud St. Ed's was of me as a representative on the mat. Um, you know, how religion played a factor in that, uh, how, you know, it opened up so many doors, you know, to the Ivy Leagues that now, even to this day, we have kids from St. Ed's that are in the wrestling team that are going to the University of Pennsylvania. Um, you know, there, there's been a, a path laid uh, so that you can pay it forward to, to the younger generation. And, you know, that's what life's really about, right? You, you never want to get it paid back. You want to see it and pay it forward. And to see that kind of stuff, it, it's awesome. It's, it's really cool to see. It's legacy yeah. building. You, you mentioned religion from a spiritual aspect. As you were going through those times, those years, your, your junior and senior years, did you, uh, you feel your father was with you? Yeah. You know what? There, it's been, there's been weird moments, not just in that period of time, but like even, even in the last couple of years, you know, where people have struggled, you know, financially or professionally or from a health perspective, I mean, it's been a real mind fuck, excuse my language, but you know, this, this whole last two years, it's so hard because you want to trust in like the health, in the health community and, and what they're telling you, you want to, you want to trust in, in your leaders of the country. Uh, it's just been a really hard thing to do. Um, you know, w when you go through stuff like that, but at the end of the day, I've had these weird guardian angels in my life, you know, and it's, you know, I would say, you know, angel on earth is my mom for sure. But, you know, my father's times through, through some really, really tough times. And, you know, that's been, I don't want to say life-saving moments, but it's been uplifting moments from some really dark places. And, and I'll tell you what, at the end of the day, 
it's really been, she's been there for me. And, um, you know, I had huge opportunities. You know, I, I, I had a great career on Wall Street, you know, went to start one of the first publicly traded cryptocurrency merchant banks. Um, you know, that was a, a great start. And then, you know, I had a chance to, to launch my own business. And, you know, that was March of 2020, right into COVID. Mm. Right. And you're like, holy smokes, like I'm on my way. I'm going to launch my own business. Like, here we go. Like, this is it. Like, this is this is where it's escape velocity to the next level. And it's like, wham. And I just got angrier and angrier about, you know, the misinformation that was out there. I got angrier about people making excuses about I can't do this. I can't do that. Um, and from that anger, it's kind of like literally a Star Wars episode from that anger just really got dark. Um, and I carried that for a long time, you know, trying to homeschool, you know, two kids with a newborn baby, by the way, my wife work, has a you know professional career. She, she, she's a banker at PNC and, you know, I'm trying to launch my own business and, and we're trying to homeschool two kids and we're not teachers. I didn't go to school to be a teacher. And I, listen, I have all the respect in the world for all the teachers that, you know, taught me and, and teach my kids. And I appreciate them greatly and more so now than ever what i what i was trained to do right. and um i'll tell you what man my you know the angels on earth the angels in heaven and um i'll tell you what my wife just just it's pulled everything. me from some really dark places everything absolutely yeah, yeah. You it's need family a it, you it's need family a right yeah i mean if right. you don't have a rock solid partner you could only go so far in life i am truly convinced i don't care who you are you need to have somebody that's there and supportive and making sure that your best interest, they're looking out for you. They're building you up. They're raising you up. They're, they're there for you. They're, they're your backbone. You need somebody like that in order to go to the highest levels. Um, so that is interesting. So you, you ended up going off to um, University of Pennsylvania. And you also went to the business school there at Wharton, correct? So, right. so you, did you get your MBA from there? Is that how that works? Uh, undergrad, actually. They you went undergrad. undergrad. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I just want to kind of pivot to that a little bit. When you say you were starting your own company, you're talking about this NACA Capital? That's right. That's right. Okay. So you guys, exactly what are you guys doing? So uh, the, the intention was um, there was going to be two silos to the, the investment company. Uh, so the, the one silo on the consumer side is to focus on owning, operating, and investing in consumer businesses. Um, I have a specific tie into the, uh, the QSR space, the quick serve restaurant. So, um, you know, I actually, we just closed our first acquisition at the end of the year uh, in the Bojangles restaurant family. So, um, you know, we, we essentially now own the Norfolk, Virginia, Virginia Beach area as a franchisee in the, in the space. And, you know, we have a great team in place um, and an amazing uh, operator and, 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 and managers that, that have really done a great job of, of running that business. But it's an iconic brand and, you know, it, there's a long runway for growth, too. So we're going to actually look to expand that footprint within that region and, and hopefully knock on wood in, into some frontier space. People keep asking uh, if it's going to come to Northeast Ohio. I said, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so you have one that, restaurant? That I, no, no. I, I, bought a, I, bought a, I bought out a franchisee that had multiple restaurants down in multiple. that area. Okay. That's so right. You guys That's are right. coming to the table. You guys are coming to the table with the capital to, to, of course, do that. But do you have your own operating team, or are you? That's right. You yep. do have your own operator. Absolutely, absolutely. So when you think about when you think about building that type of business, um, you know, I worked on Wall Street for as long as I have. I worked in, you know, then you know, helped launch, uh, you know, one of the first publicly traded cryptocurrency merchant banks. What does that mean? And what do I know about restaurants? Absolutely nothing. 
right? So you have to come up a steep curve uh, to, to learn a lot about the industry, uh, a lot about the subsectors, and then a lot about brands. And this brand, I specifically happen to have some, some very close ties to, you know, my boss, Mike Novogratz, um, and a good friend of mine, Matthew Bradshaw, uh, the founder of Durational Capital Partners, which is a private equity firm that actually bought and took private Bojangles. Um, I... I, I was really close to and learned a lot about the businesses and it just made a lot of sense to have that as a component of the, uh, of an, uh, of the company where there's stable cash flow plus long-term growth. Um, you know, so when I look at that category and consumer, that's an area that I, I feel comfortable with. Uh, we hired, I hired a, an amazing operator, a gentleman named Kirk Hartman, uh, you know, spent 30 years in the, in the QSR restaurant space and, and was, uh, you know, most recently, uh, the director of franchise operations at Buffalo Wild Wings and, and went on to be the COO of a, a major franchisee thereafter. Uh, he joined on as a partner and, and our chief operating officer. Um, but you have to put talent around you uh, in order to you know, operate businesses like that. And, and he's, you know, he's A plus grade. On the other side of the business, um, more investment focused. So looking at cryptocurrency investments, uh, infrastructure plays tied to the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. Uh, fintech payments companies and things like that. So uh, we're actually pretty close on making our first uh, first investment as a group uh, under Naka Capital uh, in a cup in one of the, the key names that I, I think very highly of in the space. So excited about that. And you know when it rains it pours. So you know the momentum and the flywheel's going. And you know we're not going to do you know one of these. We're going to do a hundred of these. Well, and, so, uh, so, so we got a long runway. So the who, let's go back to the hospitality side, the the quick serve yep. uh, restaurant model. Mm-hmm. So who is, if there's somebody that would be interested in you guys, would it be like a, a Chick-fil-A, would it be the franchise themselves contacting you to say, hey, we, we have three opportunities that you guys might want to take a look at? Or are you talking to already, would it be more, would it make more sense to talk to someone that's already running the franchise and they're looking to exit? Everything. So what we did was, is we built a three-pronged strategy to the business. So corporate, uh, Bojangles Corporate was looking to sell some of their corporate stores. They own about 320 or so out of the 700 plus uh, restaurants uh, across the uh, southeastern part of the United States. Um, they are, you know, they ran what they call a refranchising program to sell some of their stores down. So we looked at um, a couple of different bundles uh, or groups of stores that were in, you know, Georgia, that were in North Carolina, South Carolina. And, uh, you know, we went through the bidding process. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't bid on or win the first couple of uh, bundles. Uh, we did look at another set of stores down in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. But in the meantime, that was strategy one was to buy corporate stores. Strategy two is to build new stores, right? So they've done a really good job of redesigning stores, shrinking, what they, shrinking the box, as they call it, um, making it more drive-through efficient uh, and um, online delivery and, and adding technology that would, um, would support that aspect of, of sales. Uh, into what we think is an iconic brand and, and a, an amazingly high quality product. So um, building new stores with a new efficient, you know, technological, technologically focused model um, uh, w- was kind of plan two. And then plan three is tuck and acquisitions, right? So 51% of the uh, Bojangles franchisee system is made up of franchisees that only own one or two stores. And really you want scale, right? So the goal was to start with five plus, and then look at small token acquisitions, all while building uh, new stores within that footprint. So uh, we have executed on the third strategy. Uh, we are focused on you know planting our first flag with our first new build, 
uh, in the second strategy. And the first strategy will still come along when corporate's ready to sell, sell more stores. Okay. So, so it's, it's a dynamic, it's a dynamic playbook. If you think sure, about it like that. Sure. And you, and there's no restaurant that's off limits, correct? Just because you're in one area of food doesn't mean you can't be in another similar type well, of franchise. Can you? Well, there's, there are some restrictions, right? You, you know, so Ch- for example, let's look at Chick-fil-A, right? Chick-fil-A, if you go to become a franchisee or an operator, really, you don't actually own the store. The corporate owns the store. You can run one store. Now, the AUVs for a Chick-fil-A is anywhere between seven and a half and $8 million per store. So the revenue share that you get from running one store is fairly significant, right? So um, that's the Chick-fil-A approach. Um, you know, whether you look at a McDonald's or a Taco Bell or other brands outside of chicken, um, you know, those could be opportunities at some point. I mean, pizza is obviously a huge category. Um, we could explore those, but there's so much runway to build um, in this, in the chicken QSR space, let alone with this brand. Uh, like I say, it's an iconic brand. You know, what's interesting about Ohio too. There's so many people in Ohio that go to vacation, go on vacation to Hilton Head, Myrtle Beach, the Outer Banks, right? Um, they are so familiar with the Bojangles brand that every time I talk to people about Bojangles in Northeast Ohio, they keep saying, when are you, are you going to build one up here? Like, we'd love to have one. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Um, because of that vacation pattern, a massive, massive runway for the brand, um, not just in our footprint in Virginia, but literally in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Indiana, um, there's this, the, the, the road is really endless for, for the opportunity. There. So this is where you're going to be focusing most. Cause I know you guys do the, the technologies piece. Like you said, you invest mm-hmm. in some of this other, you're looking to make yep. your first big, uh, investment. Do you see yourself personally being more focused here on the hospitality side? Um, I am right now. You That's most right important, now. right? Yeah. I have, I have, I have, I have a business that has a, a, a very strong foundation, uh, very strong sales, very strong cash flow that I can accelerate my growth prospects. Uh, my ability to enhance value within that category significantly day one is highest right now. Um, the other side of the business, the technology investment side of the cryptocurrency investment side is very focused on taking rifle shots into companies that I think are Number one, super important to the infrastructure. Two, have great leaders. And three, will be a good steward of my capital when I, when I invest in that company or when our team invests in that company or our investment partners invest in that company. So that takes a lot of babysitting. Yeah, that side of the equation, that sounds more of a, a just kind of a passive investment of some sort. Uh, maybe not as much hands-on, maybe not as much operational. It depends, as you're right? Doing, so on, it depends, right? So it's it much more hands-on when it comes to running a restaurant business, right? right. Um, it's, it's all about your people, right? So that's most important. Um, your, your leadership on down, uh, how you implement your culture, that takes time. Uh, the nice thing about the business that we bought and the franchisees that we bought it from, they actually carry a lot of the similar values that you know, represent me, my family, and, and our company. Uh, so that was an easy transition. And what are um, those, Yoshi? What are, what are their core values? What's the mission? What's the purpose of, of Bojangles? So my dad wrote a poem that was read to the emperor of Japan when he was a kid. Uh, and it's called uh, Pheasant's Eye. And the poem goes, uh, it's a haiku, and it's, it goes, Pheasant's Eye, be deep-rooted, and endure no matter how hard you stepped on, spring when you can blossom will always come. Right? And the underlying philosophy of, you know, going through tough times, coming out the other side, um, embracing people uh, and, and lifting people up, helping them grow uh, is 
is an important value and characteristic of what we bring to the table. Um, and there are very simple things that, that we were raised, that I was raised on, you know, be a good person, do the right thing, set your goals high, work hard to achieve them, respect people in their culture, right? And, you know, when you kind of weave all of that together, um, that is the fabric and the cloth of NACA Capital. Mm. And that is the, the type of people uh, that carry those values. Those are the type of people that we want to bring into our business. Kirk Hartman, our chief operating officer, uh, you know, it, that is woven into his DNA. Uh, Vince Duccio, who's who's the director of operations that, that works with us as well uh, on, on the business, that is woven into his DNA as well as all the other managers at, uh, uh, at our stores. Uh, and the nice thing about that is uh, we even, we focus on invest, we focus on investing in people and the previous franchisee also carried those values. This is going to allow us to take, you know, the next assistant manager that's coming up and when we open that new store or if we acquire new stores, we have the ability to, to, to give them opportunity, right? So we're lifting them up and we're helping them grow within the career and field that, that they chose to be in. Um, and, Nothing better than promoting you know, from within. That's such a absolutely. great attribute to have as a business where, you can, where your employees can elevate and continue to grow with you. That's right. That's right. And, and, and it's interesting because technology within a store uh, or within a restaurant, especially when it comes to quick serve, drive-through, delivery, online ordering. Um, it's changed the game a lot. Uh, and it's actually changed the game a lot, a, a lot around catering. Um, so there are actually things that we see with the existing business that is a very strong business where we can take the game to the next level. Like we're not looking to make changes and change things. We actually, when we acquired the business, we kept all the same benefits. We kept the same payroll company. We kept the same... Um, all the same service providers. We didn't change one thing. And our message to our team and, and was, you know, look, we're not, we're not looking to change or rebuild the foundation of this business. This, this business is built on a very strong foundation of people and process and quality food. We're here to implement some technology and take this game to the next level. Mm. And, you know, give everybody an opportunity that, that, you know, if they, if they are ready and they, they are, they are, they want to take that step. We'll be there to to help lift them up and coach them up to that that position. That's and it's absolutely. a reload. It's a it's it's a reload scenario. It's not a rebuild scenario, right? And think about the kind of momentum you want to keep doing that. Absolutely. Uh, before we finish it off, you did mention cryptocurrencies, so I have to ask you because this is crazy. Sure. I mean, this is this is the times we're living in. Do you own any? Do you? Own I do. Any? I do own. What do you some. own? What do you own? I own Bitcoin and I own a little bit okay. of Ethereum. Okay. Good, um, good. Those are the two most popular, right? What, 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 where do you see this whole crypto thing going in the next five years? Um, and future? it is, it is the future. 100%. We have um, the, this technology. If you just sim, sim, take it down to simple terms and take it to Bitcoin, right? The, the original white paper by Satoshi and everybody should read that um, and understand what that represents. That understand what that represents freedom um, and the, the necessity of, of, of relying on centralized governments or financial institutions. And by the way, I worked at one of the largest in the world that almost went belly up, right? City. Uh, you know, we were right smack dab in the middle of the financial crisis. Um, and Bitcoin specifically was so that people could rely on other people uh, and a network of people as opposed to an, a centralized institution that controls everything. And a lot of that evolved because we lost faith in governments in 2009, the financial institutions, the mortgage industry, 
um, it really put the not only the U.S. economy, but the, the world into a tailspin from an economic standpoint. And, you know, when that white paper came out and it talks about decentralizing that power and that monetary power um, and control, it, it's genius. So that's the first genius in the creation of Bitcoin is the decentralization and the network effect that it has. Here's the second genius behind in cryptocurrencies in general. Not the United States of America, but other countries, uh, third world countries or emerging markets countries, as we call them now, or communist countries. Uh, there are some concerns, some of the time, that if you don't agree with a certain political belief and you speak out against it, you disappear. I'm going to leave all countries out of it, uh, but that is a concern. There's a reason why people from foreign countries in Asia buy real estate in the United States, because despite the fact that even in 2009 and 10, you know, people were concerned that the value of their real estate got cut in half, they still had 50% of the value of whatever it is that they had. They didn't have zero. Right. And the interesting thing about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is the mobility of money, right? Can you take a million dollars of gold and, and go get out of the country if, if you had to? No, you can't, right? Can you take a really a million dollars of cash and you know, get it through an x-ray scan and, and no, probably they're going to stop you and question you, right? I can put, you know, a million dollars. And at one point I did carry that much money on, or I had access to that much money on, uh, on a Trezor or on my phone. Um, and, and I can, I can leave, I can go right. out of the country. And, and the mobility of money was an amazing second genius aspect to uh, the creation of Bitcoin and this decentralization aspect of, of what it is. So it is the it, the people are retaking the power. It's regaining control and having right. the and, and and but it needs it needs the masses to continue to learn about it, continue to educate themselves, buy yep. into it, and understand what this is because the fear will drive it right back down to nothing. Yeah. So the interesting part about what you just said was it was a people's revolution is the way to think about it against the institution. And in 2018, when I left City to go to, to launch, help launch Galaxy Digital, um, one of the things that a lot of my institutional buddies were joking about, and I, one major hedge fund manager specifically, tongue in cheek, you know, he said, oh, you're going to go do that fake money shit with, uh, with Nova Grants, huh? And I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about, but yeah, I am. 2018, we often talked about how this institutional herd was coming towards the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. Number one, what we realized is the intellectual firepower that was being thrown at this and the creation of new blockchains uh, and, and projects that were going on was the most intellectually intoxicating environment I've ever been in in my life, first and foremost. Second of all, what we saw was a massive amount of inquiries, major financial institutions, fund managers and investors around the world asking how to participate, investing in the space. Um, outside of buying the, the cryptocurrency, outside of buying Bitcoin. Because they're like, yeah, we're not so sure about like, like how do you store Bitcoin? He's like, but I, I want to invest in companies. Um, and so this education curve started to, to get really steep for them and they started to climb it. And the following year, you heard about Facebook getting into the space. You heard about Amazon. You heard about all these major companies that have these huge social networks or social aspects to their business um, saying, wow, this could make a lot of sense. 
and I could control it. Or we could create a blockchain that's decentralized, but we could have, you know, a certain amount of like people on a committee or a foundation overseeing kind of the governance of, of that blockchain. And that to me was the telltale moment that this is not fake money. This is very real. This is a technologically, this is a technology innovation that is, is something you see once in a lifetime. Mm. And, um, and it's big. And, and now you see some of the largest financial institutions, some of the largest tech companies in the world getting into the space. Look at PayPal, look at Square. Um, Microsoft has been involved. Um, and you it's can not buy, just You can buy Bitcoin right from Cash App Direct. You don't even need a Robinhood right. or an E-Trade account. You can That's go right. right direct That's on right. Cash App. Like even Coinstar, right? You know the coin machines? Mm-hmm. So there's a company called CoinMe that integrated their software into the Coinstar machine. And you can drop all your money in and get Bitcoin into an account. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, it, it, we, we gotta do we gotta do a part two where you can come on and come in studio for this one and we'll talk Bitcoin and, and crypto maybe later this year. That'd be great. That's right, absolutely. And uh yeah, I definitely will take you up on that scotch next time I'm in. <laughs> hey, uh, this has been fantastic, man. Uh, I really appreciate the insight and walking down memory lane with you at the old St. Ed's days. Hey, quick last question on the wrestling. Who was the toughest guy in all your years? Name one guy who gave you the most problems. Who was it? Uh, in high school, yeah. Um, you know what? Uh, give a shout out to uh, to my boy Sonny Marchetti. And Sonny Marchetti, he and I only wrestled once. It was in an all star meet. Um, it went into double overtime. Uh, I won the coin toss. I escaped. Um, you know, so I walked away with the victory. But he was probably one of the toughest wrestlers that I ever stepped on the mat with and practiced with thereafter. And, um, you know, the things he's doing for Northeast Ohio, he coaches uh, over at Notre Dame College. Um, the guy still scraps on the mat today. I saw him wrestling in, in, a, uh, in an open meet. Um, he's probably one of the toughest guys out there that's ever stepped on a wrestling mat. And, um, you know, so I'll, I'll give a shout out to him. And, you know, and I'll tell you what, um, there, there are plenty other guys that are on that list too. Uh, sure. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be the man I am today if I didn't go through the gauntlet of, of wrestling all those tough guys, whether it's in the St. Ed's wrestling room, Brad Clement, Eddie Jane, Ben Hada. Um, you know, I could go on in, in that, that on, on that list. But, um, sure. yeah. you know, th- there, there are a lot of guys out there that, um, that, that deserve the recognition. But That's um, awesome. That's awesome. And I got to yeah. tell you, Man, everything you've done from all that physical, from the judo, from three, four years old, all the way up to state champ in high school, that set the stage for your professional career. And that's why you continue to be successful and be competitive and overcome adversity. Um, People can find you guys online where? Um, You know, right now we have, um, we we actually use LinkedIn. uh, So I do a lot of uh, marketing, branding, uh, and representation of our business through LinkedIn. You know, it's probably one of the best professional sites um to, to go to um you know so you can see our, our businesses there um, i actually do a lot of podcasts um uh, when i was at galaxy and thereafter uh around cryptocurrencies so i have a litany of 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 of, of interviews we've done with top level c executives our c level executives through the space um and it's a good place if you're looking to to educate yourself on on cryptocurrencies um there's plenty of videos that uh, that, that can help you come up the curve that's awesome. Hey, uh, Yoshi, we will link you up in the sh- uh, show notes, brother. Thank you very much again, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. Thanks, Nate. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. 
And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, you could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps. Wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.